Section 10 Chapters 19 and 20 of Book 1 of Volume 2 of Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville Translated by Henry Reeve This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is done by Ralph Volpe. Chapter 19 Some Observations on the Drama Amongst Democratic Nations When the revolution which subverts the social and political state of an aristocratic people begins to penetrate into literature, it generally first manifests itself in the drama, and it always remains conspicuous there. The spectator of a dramatic piece is, to a certain extent, taken by surprise by the impression it conveys. He has no time to refer to his memory, or to consult those more able to judge than himself. It does not occur to him to resist the new literary tendencies which begin to be felt by him. He yields to them before he knows what they are. Authors are very prompt in discovering which way the taste of the public is thus secretly inclined. They shape their productions accordingly, and the literature of the stage, after having served to indicate the approach of literary revolution, speedily completes its accomplishment. If you would judge beforehand the literature of a people which is lapsing into democracy, study its dramatic productions. The literature of the stage, moreover, even amongst aristocratic nations, constitutes the most democratic part of their literature. No kind of literary gratification is so much within the reach of the multitude as that which is derived from theatrical representations. Neither preparation nor study is required to enjoy them. They lay hold on you in the midst of your prejudices and your ignorance. When the yet untutored love of the pleasures of the mind begins to affect a class of the community, it instantly draws them to the stage. The theatres of aristocratic nations have always been filled with spectators not belonging to the aristocracy. At the theatre alone the higher ranks mix with the middle and lower classes. There alone do the former consent to listen to the opinions of the latter, or at least allow them to give an opinion at all. At the theatre, men of cultivation and of literary attainments have always had more difficulty than elsewhere in making their taste prevail over that of the people, and in preventing themselves from being carried away by the latter. The pit has frequently made laws 
for the boxes. If it be difficult for an aristocracy to prevent the people from getting the upper hand in the theatre, it will be readily understood that the people will be supreme there when democratic principles have crept into the laws and manners, when the ranks are intermixed, when minds as well as fortunes are brought more nearly together, and when the upper class has lost, with its hereditary wealth, its power, its precedence, and its leisure. The tastes and the propensities natural to democratic nations in respect to literature will therefore first be discernible in the drama and it may be foreseen that they will break out there with vehemence in written productions the literary canons of aristocracy will be gently gradually and so to speak legally modified at the theatre they will be riotously overthrown the drama brings out most of the good qualities and almost all the defects inherent in democratic literature democratic peoples hold erudition very cheap and care but little for what occurred at rome and athens they want to hear something which concerns themselves and the delineation of the present age is what they demand when the heroes and the manners of antiquity are frequently brought upon the stage, and dramatic authors faithfully observe the rules of antiquated precedent, that is enough to warrant a conclusion that the democratic classes have not yet got the upper hand of the theatres. Racine makes a very humble apology in the preface to Britannicus, for having disposed of Oenea amongst the Vestals, who, according to Aulius Galenus, he says, admitted no one below six years of age, nor above ten. We may be sure he would neither have accused himself of the offense, nor defended himself from censure, if he had written for our contemporaries. A fact of this kind not only illustrates the state of literature at the time when it occurred, but also that of society itself. A democratic stage does not prove that the nation is in a state of democracy, for, as we have just seen, even in aristocracies it may happen that democratic tastes affect the drama. But when the spirit of aristocracy reigns exclusively on the stage, the fact irrefragably demonstrates that the whole of society is aristocratic and it may be boldly inferred that the same lettered and learned class which sways the dramatic writers commands the people and governs the country. The refined tastes and the arrogant bearing of an aristocracy will rarely fail to lead it, when it manages the stage, to make a kind of selection in human nature. Some of the conditions of society claim its chief interest, and the scenes which delineate their manners are preferred upon the stage. Certain virtues, and even certain vices, are thought more particularly to deserve to figure there, and they are applauded whilst all others are excluded. Upon the stage, as well as elsewhere, an aristocratic audience will only meet personages of quality and share the emotions of kings. 
The same thing applies to style. An aristocracy is apt to impose upon dramatic authors certain modes of expression which give the key in which everything is to be delivered. By these means the stage frequently comes to delineate only one side of man, or sometimes even to represent what is not to be met with in human nature at all, to rise above nature and to go beyond it. In democratic communities the spectators have no such partiality, and they rarely display any such antipathies. They like to see upon the stage that medley of conditions, of feelings, and of opinions which occur before their eyes. The drama becomes more striking, more common, and more true. Sometimes, however, those who write for the stage in democracies also transgress the bounds of human nature, but it is on a different side from their predecessors. By seeking to represent in minute detail the little singularities of the moment and the particular characteristics of certain personages, they forget to portray the general features of the race. When the democratic classes rule the stage, they introduce as much license in the manner of treating subjects as in the choice of them. As the love of drama is, of all literary tastes, that which is most natural to democratic nations, the number of authors and of spectators, as well of theatrical representations, is constantly increasing amongst these communities. A multitude composed of elements so different and scattered in so many different places cannot acknowledge the same rules or submit to the same laws. No concurrence is possible amongst judges so numerous who know not when they may meet again, and therefore each pronounces his own sentence on the peace. If the effect of democracy is generally to question the authority of all literary rules and conventions, on the stage it abolishes them altogether, and puts in their place nothing but the whim of each author and of each public. The drama also displays, in an especial manner, the truth of what I have said before in speaking more generally of style and art in democratic literature. In reading the criticisms which were occasioned by the dramatic productions of the age of Louis the Fourteenth, one is surprised to remark the great stress which the public laid on the probability of the plot, and the importance which was attached to the perfect consistency of the characters and to their doing nothing which could not be easily explained and understood. The value which was set upon the forms of language at that period, and the paltry strife about the words which the dramatic authors were assailed, are no less surprising. It would seem that the men of the age of Louis the Fourteenth attached a very exaggerated importance to these details, which may be perceived in the study, which which escape attention on the stage. For, after all, the principal object of a dramatic piece is be to be performed, and its chief merit is to affect the audience. But the audience and the readers in that age were the same. On quitting the theater, they called up the author for judgment to their own firesides. In democracies, 
dramatic pieces are listened to, but not read. Most of those who frequent the amusements of the stage do not go there to seek the pleasures of the mind, but the keen emotions of the heart. They do not expect to hear a fine literary work, but to see a play, and provided the author writes the language of his country correctly enough to be understood, and that his characters excite curiosity and awaken sympathy, the audience are satisfied. They ask no more of fiction, and immediately return to real life. Accuracy of style is therefore less required, because the attentive observance of its rules is less perceptible on the stage. As for the probability of the plot, it is incompatible with perpetual novelty, surprise, and rapidity of invention. It is therefore neglected, and the public excuses the neglect. You may be sure that if you succeed in bringing your audience into the presence of something that affects them, they will not care by what road you brought them there, and they will never reproach you for having excited their emotions in spite of dramatic rules. The Americans very broadly display all the different propensities which I have here described when they go to the theater. But it must be acknowledged that as yet a very small number of them go to theaters at all. Although playgoers and plays have prodigiously increased in the United States in the last forty years, the population indulges in this kind of amusement with the greatest reserve. This is attributable to particular causes, which the reader is already acquainted with and of which a few words will suffice to remind him. The Puritans who founded the American republics were not only enemies to amusements, but they professed an especial abhorrence for the stage. They considered it as an abominable pastime, and as long as their principles prevailed with undivided sway, scenic performances were wholly unknown amongst them. These opinions of the first fathers of the colony have left very deep marks on the minds of their descendants. The extreme regularity of habits and the great strictness of manners which are observable in the United States have as yet opposed additional obstacles to the growth of dramatic art. There are no dramatic subjects in a country which has witnessed no great political catastrophes and in which love inevitably leads in by a straight and easy road to matrimony. People who spend every day in the week in making money, and the Sunday in going to church, have nothing to invite the muse of comedy. A single fact suffices to show that the stage is not very popular in the United States. The Americans whose laws allow of the utmost freedom and even license of language in all other respects, have nevertheless subject their dramatic authors to a sort of censorship. Theatrical performances can only take place by permission of the municipal authorities. This may serve to show how much communities are like individuals. They surrender themselves unscrupulously to their ruling passions, and afterwards take the greatest care not to yield too much to the vehemence of taste which they do not possess. 
No portion of literature is connected by closer or more numerous ties with the present condition of society than the drama. The drama of one period can never be suited to the following age, if in the interval an important revolution has changed the manners and the laws of the nation. The great authors of a preceding age may be read, but pieces written for a different public will not be followed. The dramatic authors of the past live only in books. The traditional taste of certain individuals, vanity, fashion, or the genius of an actor may sustain or resuscitate for a time the aristocratic drama amongst a democracy, but it will speedily fall away of itself, not overthrown, but abandoned. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20 Characteristics of Historians in Democratic Ages Historians who write in aristocratic ages are wont to refer all occurrences to the particular will or temper of certain individuals, and they are apt to attribute the most important revolutions to very slight accidents. They trace out the smallest causes with sagacity, and frequently leave the greatest unperceived. Historians who live in democratic ages exhibit precisely opposite characteristics. Most of them attribute hardly any influence to the individual over the destiny of the race, nor to citizens over the fate of a people. But, on the other hand, they assign great general causes to all petty incidents. These contrary tendencies explain each other. When the historian of aristocratic ages surveys the theater of the world, he at once perceives a very small number of prominent actors who manage the whole piece. These great personages, who occupy the front of the stage, arrest the observation and fix it on themselves and whilst the historian is bent on penetrating the secret motives which makes them speak and act, the rest escape his memory. The importance of the things which some men seem to do gives him an exaggerated estimate of the influence which one man may possess, and naturally leads him to think that in order to explain the impulse of the multitude, it is necessary to refer them to the particular influence of some one individual. When, on the contrary, all the citizens are independent of one another, and each of them is individually weak, no one is seen to exert a great, or still less, a lasting power over the community. At first sight, individuals appear to be absolutely devoid of any influence over it, and society would seem to advance alone by the free and voluntary concurrence of all men who compose it. This naturally prompts the mind to search for that general reason which operates upon so many men's faculties at the same time, and turns them simultaneously in the same direction. I am very well convinced that even amongst democratic nations, the genius 
the vices, or the virtues of certain individuals retard or accelerate the natural current of a people's history. But causes of this secondary and fortuitous nature are infinitely more various, more concealed, more complex, less powerful, and consequently less easy to trace in periods of equality than in ages of aristocracy, when the task of the historian is simply to detach from the mass of general events one man or of a few men. In the former case, the historian is soon wearied by the toil. His mind loses itself in this labyrinth, and, in his inability clearly to discern or conspicuously to point out the influence of individuals, he denies their existence. He prefers talking about the characteristics of the race, the physical conformation of the country, or the genius of civilization, which abridges his own labors and satisfies his readers far better at less cost. Monsieur de Lafayette says somewhere in his memoirs that the exaggerated system of general causes affords surprising consolations to second-rate statesmen. I will add that its effects are not less conciliatory to second-rate historians. It can always furnish a few mighty reasons to extricate them from the most difficult part of their work, and it indulges the indolence or incapacity of their minds whilst it confers upon them the honors of deep thinking. For myself, I am of the opinion that at all times one great portion of the events of this world are attributable to general facts, and the other to special influences. These two kinds of cause are always in operation, their proportion only varies. General facts serve to explain more things in democratic than in aristocratic ages, and fewer things are then assignable to special influences. At periods of aristocracy the reverse takes place. Special influences are stronger, general causes weaker, unless, indeed, we consider as a general cause the fact itself of the inequality of conditions which allows some individuals to baffle the natural tendencies of all the rest. The historians who seek to describe what occurs in democratic societies are right, therefore, in assigning much to general causes, and in devoting their chief attentions to discover them. But they are wrong in wholly denying the special influence of individuals, because they cannot easily trace or follow it. The historians who live in democratic ages are not only prone to assign a great cause to every incident, but they are also given to connect incidents together, so as to deduce a system from them. In aristocratic ages, as the attention of historians is constantly drawn to individuals, the connection of events escapes them, or, rather, they do not believe in any such connection. To them the cue of history seems every instant crossed and broken by the step of man. In democratic ages, on the contrary, as the historian sees much more of actions than of actors, he may easily establish some kinds of sequency and mythological order amongst the former. 
ancient literature which is so rich in fine historical compositions does not contain a single great historical system while the poorest of the modern literatures abound with them it would appear that the ancient historians did not make sufficient use of those general theories which our historical writers are ever ready to carry to excess those who write in democratic ages have another more dangerous tendency when the traces of individual actions upon nations are lost it often happens that the world goes on to move though the moving agent is no longer discoverable as it becomes extremely difficult to discern and to analyze the reasons which acting separately on the volition of each member of the community concur in the end to produce movements in the old mass men are led to believe that this movement is involuntary and that societies unconsciously obey some superior force ruling over them but even when the general fact which governs the private volition of all individuals is supposed to be discovered upon the earth the principle of human free will is not secure a cause sufficiently extensive to affect millions of men at once and sufficiently strong to bend them all together in the same direction may well seem to be irresistible having seen that mankind do yield to it the mind is close upon the inference that mankind cannot resist it historians who live in democratic ages then not only deny that few have any power of acting upon the destiny of a people but they deprive the people themselves of the power of modifying their own condition and they subject them to either an inflexible providence or to some blind necessity according to them each nation is indissolubly bound by its position its origin its precedence and its character to a certain lot which no efforts can ever change they involve generation in generation and thus going back from age to age and from necessity to necessity up to the origin of the world they forge a close and enormous chain which girds and binds the human race to their minds it is not enough to show that events have occurred they would fain show that the events could not have occurred otherwise they take a nation arrived at a certain stage of its history and they affirm that it could not but follow the track which brought it thither it is easier to make such an assertion than to show by what means the nation might have adopted a better course in reading the historians of aristocratic ages and especially those of antiquity it would seem that to be master of his lot and to govern his fellow creatures man requires only to be master of himself in pursuing the historical volumes which our age has produced it would seem that man is utterly powerless over himself and over all around him the historians of antiquity taught how to command those of our time teach only how to obey in their writings the author often appears great but humanity is always diminutive if this doctrine of necessity which is so attractive to those who write history in the democratic ages 
passes from authors to their readers, till it infects the whole mass of the community and gets possession of the public mind, it will soon paralyze the activity of modern society and reduce Christians to the level of the Turks. I would, moreover, observe that such principles are particularly dangerous at the period at which we have arrived. Our contemporaries are but too prone to doubt of the human free will, because each of them feels himself confined on every side by his own weakness. But they are still willing to acknowledge the strength and independence of men united in society. Let not this principle be lost sight of, for the great object of our time is to raise the faculties of men, not complete their prostration. End of chapter 20 of Book 1 of Volume 2 of Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville, translated by Henry Reeve. This reading was done by Ralph Volpe. End of section 10.